Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Business of Freelancing podcast. So today's guest is Adam Davidson. Adam is a well-known business reporter and writer. He founded NPR's Planet Money. He's written for both the New York Times Magazine and the New Yorker. He recently founded a new podcast company, and we're here to talk to him about his new book, The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century. This week on our panel, we have Meg Cumby. Hello. And Mark Reffel. Hi. And I'm Reuven Lerner. And our special guest today is Adam Davidson, the author of The Passion Economy. Adam, welcome to the business of freelancing. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Welcome. So let's start off with the simple and obvious question, which is what is the passion economy and how is it different from, you know, the other economy? Sure. I mean, basically it comes out of years of reporting and mostly reporting very dark things about how the economy is changing in ways that have really dislocated a lot of people. A lot of the rules that we operate according to seem to not quite work anymore. And over time, coming to see both by seeing examples of freelancers who are thriving in interesting ways, and then also talking to economic historians, economists, business people, coming to see like, yes, the rules have changed. Yes, that causes a lot of pain, but it also creates amazing opportunity, new opportunity that did not exist before. The idea of the passion economy is that there's a host of things that have changed in how the basic nature of our global economy works, and they make it a uniquely great time for freelancers, for entrepreneurs, and for people who have jobs but who want jobs that, or, or businesses or careers that come out of their unique both desires, their passions, their interests, and their abilities. Of course, you have to find a market. It doesn't mean you're guaranteed that if you love experimental puppetry, you're going to make enough to pay your rent. But, um, but it means that more than any time in human history, you have a really serious shot of marrying what you love most with a steady, solid, good, growing income. I've often told my kids that I feel extremely fortunate that what I love is also something that's in demand. Um, and so I can turn it into a business and I can make money from it. What do you say to the people who don't have a particular passion? Like, are they going to be able to thrive in this new economy? Or do they have to find a passion in order to do well? Yeah, I'd, I'd say like since, you know, writing a book's a weird thing where you spend years and years and years researching, reading, talking to people. But then it's only after you're done, um, a long time often after you're done, that you actually, the book comes out and people start reading it. And... Um, this was one of the things I, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I'd be a little more careful about because I, I don't see passion as just something you're born with or you either have it or you don't, you know, and, um, and if you don't have one, you're out of luck and you're, you're I, I see passion as, and particularly this application of the word passion, um, you know, a, a, a kind of passion that can undergird a business as something that takes a very long time. Some people are lucky and, you know, it's 16 or 22 or whatever, it's fairly fully formed. Certainly for me, I would say it wasn't until I was well into my 30s, maybe almost 40, that I could really articulate it. I, I, um, so, you know, my belief is it's something you 
you know, it's not unlike, say, a college degree or another advanced degree. It's something you know would be valuable. You know you want it, but it's a lot of work to get there, and it's um, and it and it's worth many years of investment in finding it because it's such a valuable thing. But absolutely not. I mean, in a weird way, when I meet, say, twenty-one-year-olds coming out of college, or in Israel, twenty-four-year-olds coming out of college, I feel like. Um, Certainty is almost a warning sign that they're off. Like, like I, I think passion, except in rare cases, should not be something that's just, oh, I know what it is. You know, you meet those people. I've always wanted to be a pediatric dentist or whatever. Um, but even there, you'd want to be a pediatric dentist in a special way. You wouldn't want to just be a pediatric dentist. So, yeah, I, I, I think passion should be cultivated, should be developed. It could change develop, evolve over your career. It's not a static thing like a third arm or something that either you have it and you're a great baseball player or you don't and you're out of luck. I think you go through some really helpful kind of rules of the passion economy in the in the book. And um, I think you start like you, you sort of based on all your conversations that you sort of mentioned about starting with something that you're good at and that you enjoy and then finding your customers or, you know, the people that you want to serve. Some people might ask, like, you know, what, like, do you know if, whether you have to start with, like, do, do you always recommend or, like, based on, based on what you've seen, do you always recommend, like, the customer, finding the customers or your audience or niche or whatever you want to call that second? Or is, like, do, some, do you think sometimes people might start with, like, here's the people I want to help first and then figuring out what they can do for them? Usually the first step. I mean, it depends on on your risk appetite. It depends on your, on, on your family background and how much money you've got when you're starting out in life. But I, I think the first few phases really are best spent just doing something, not, not, not saying, no, no, I'm not going to do that job because I don't want to, you know, I don't know if I want to go into marketing, so I'm not going to take that marketing job. Or I don't know if I want to be a programmer, so I'm not going to take a programming job. It's, you know, in a weird way, in the early stages, in your, say, early 20s, I rec- just go. I mean, I, I remember when I was starting as a writer, a friend of mine said, just write and write badly and write a lot and write everything. And I would write manuals. I think I wrote a manual for a paper shredder. You know, I would write anything. And then over time, like, I don't think I'd write a manual for a paper shredder today, but, but I <laughs> learned a lot and, and I developed, you know, who I am. and. Um, so in the early days, I wouldn't worry too much about the end state. It's much more about putting yourself in a context where there's work for you to do. There's other people around who you can observe. There's hopefully people, not all of them, but a few people who are good at sizing you up. And my sense is most of us, when we become, I don't know, late 30s, 40s, 50s, whenever adulthood does finally show up, we can look back at who we were at 21, 22, 23, and see the signs of what we were going to become. But it's hard to see them at the time. But you might learn, boy, I really do hate programming. But it seems like I'm pretty good at assembling a team and running a team. Or, um, you know, I love programming, but I hate being in an office with all these idiots or whatever it might be. You're, you're, <laughs> you're learning, like in a weird way, you're studying yourself and you're thrusting yourself into contexts and, and putting yourself in a context that's awful might be 
as useful as putting yourself into a context that's perfect. I, I in college, I was an intern and then right away was producing a radio show, a public radio show. And I was like, this is what I was born to do. I love this. Over time, I realized I didn't love that job, but there were things about it that I could pay attention to and that I was uniquely good at and that I could build on. So that's what I recommend at first. I think eventually when you are, especially if you're setting out on your own as a freelancer, it's a constant dialogue between what am I uniquely good at? What do I love to do? And what, who is that group of customers who's willing to pay a premium for me? And, and that customer thing really obviously is so essential. I think it can take a while, especially in the beginning, but if you land it right, it's all part of the same thing. You're, you're finding those customers who most value you and it's helping you understand what's most valuable about you. So if you find yourself like, I'm a graphic designer and all my customers are asking me to do the most boring kind of commoditized work, but I have a special vision, then you have the wrong customers and you have to get rid of those customers, maybe slowly, maybe quickly, depending on your risk appetite and your bank account. But, um, but I think, so I think customers ultimately really are the key but it takes a while. I wouldn't put that first probably in most cases. I love the chapter specifically because you just jumped into customers. So I really resonated with the chapter um, with Megan from Honey uh, and how with her efforts in working with Jason, she really, there was these like really big aha moments that solidified these sort of internal beliefs that I already had, which were there was, and when he told her to basically, if you're billing anyone like $500 or under, get rid of them because it's costing you, costing you more time. And that really, that really resonated and that really hit home because I know I, I had started doing that earlier, but I couldn't really pinpoint why and how it was beneficial. But like you said, as soon as I started doing that, and the other thing too pointed out in that chapter that I started implementing in my own business and saw such a huge um, such a huge benefit from was because I am a programmer, a lot of the time people will come and hire me just to execute like a single part of code, but not ask for the big picture. And in my 10 years of e-commerce, is this even a good idea? Uh, so I actually started cutting a lot of the clients who I just became an implementer for. And once I started working with people who really valued what I did and really valued my experience, it brought like my job satisfaction just up to the next level. So I think that was for sure one of my one of my favorite chapters. I really I really resonated with the struggle that that uh, Megan and Emily from Honey had for sure. Yeah, she, I love their story. And I, I was a freelancer for I think about seven years, and I I know like a living customer who will actually pay you money is like. <laughs> how do you say no to that person? I'll do everything. And, um, and, and it really is true that you, uh, you definitely have customers who are costing you money. Um, and it's not, it, it can be definitely the $500 customer who you're killing yourself for, but I have found it's often your biggest customer. It's often that customer who it, it is so demanding and, Sometimes they're literally costing you money. Like it costs $1,000 to serve a $500 customer. 
often maybe you are making 50,000 or 100,000 a year from that customer, but you're not realizing they're exhausting you so much. They're sucking away your energy and your brain power that you're just stuck at that level. And so you're never going to be able to have those, that self-reflection and and strategic thinking. Um, But yeah, it's so hard. I mean, for the people in my book I cover who, who do manufacturing, several of them talk about that moment where they say, we're just going to stop selling to Walmart. We're just out of it. And Walmart is their number one customer. It looks like their whole company is going to collapse. And they very quickly realize that they're never going to get ahead with Walmart. It's just not, it's a cost, not a benefit, which is confusing because you look at your P&L and so much of the P is tied to that one customer, but you're not properly counting the loss. And I would say for freelance businesses, the soft stuff, the feelings, the satisfaction should be material. It's, <laughs> it should be material in actual accounting terms because you literally are selling your energy, your, your enthusiasm, your fresh thinking. And so your feelings actually have material value. I think we can come to think of feelings as like a distraction from business, but it actually matters. Um, but then also, like, why are you a freelancer? You're a freelancer, yes, you want to make money, but you also like want to have control over your life. And if you're killing yourself, you might as well get a crap. I mean, if your customers are crappy bosses, you might as well have a crappy boss and not have to do all the hassle <laughs> that... agree on that. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, I I mean, one of the people in my book who is Megan's counselor and mine as well, this guy, Jason Blummer, um, you know, he says, on average, fire 10% of your customers a year because you'll often find there's that customer who was perfect three years ago, but you've kind of either outgrown them or they've outgrown you or just you did the thing. You did it. And now they like you, you like them. You don't want to have that awkward conversation, but it's really just busy work. It's, it's not, you should, you know, most of your work, most of the time should be adding real value. Yeah. And that's what I loved about it because I feel like in all of the books that I've read, it's been really focused on scaling your customer base, hiring more people, like more and more and more because they're based on, Fortune 500 businesses that are continuously scaling and trying to get to that level. Uh, So I think that was another question too. I know you chose to focus on more sort of um, attainable entrepreneurship in a, to a smaller degree, really focusing on um, intimacy at scale. Why did you choose to go that route as opposed to what a lot of other business books do is go for like the really larger scale companies? That was a very, that's a very good question. And that was a big part of the whole reason I wrote the book is, you know, I, I feel like there's a bias in business books to assume like everyone wants to run Amazon and most people don't want to run Amazon and most people aren't Jeff Bezos. I personally find it very frustrating that so many books are about massive scale companies. Um, because it's scale is going to continue to grow. There's going to be scale is going to get scalier and scalier and scalier. And, um, and if you truly just, you have your heart set on being a billionaire, then yeah, you should read those books and you should 
go to Stanford Business School and you should become a venture-backed startup and you should live and be well. But, um, but I think that's a relatively small number of people. And that isn't a particular group that I think I have much to add. You know, they got other people and, and I don't, uh, I wasn't interested in them. I'm interested in the people who those people dismissively, the worst word in Silicon Valley is a lifestyle business. I mean, you know, or at Harvard Business School or Stanford Business School. You might as well, you know, I think literally neo-Nazi is not as insulting as lifestyle business person. And, um, but I think most of us want lifestyle businesses. We don't want crappy lifestyle businesses. I mean, we want to make real money and we want to build up an asset in our business over time so that we can either exit or in some way, you know, stop working so hard or shift to another business with some capital. Um, And there's better and worse ways of running a lifestyle business, but it's, most people like want don't they're not just trying to make the most money possible or build up the biggest asset possible or have the biggest exit possible and that's a very hard way to live i don't want to live that way doesn't seem like you guys want to live that way um so that's why that's why i feel like it's not that it's not a valid option it's just it's a diminishingly valid option i would say like if we were having this conversation in the 1930s it'd be very weird um because Zoom and around the world, but um, you know, it would be very futuristic. Very futuristic, but I think the right point is: oh, you want to be like reasonably rich? You should have a commodity business that can scale. Like that would be really good advice in the 1930s. I don't think it's good advice now. I think Mark Zuckerberg can do that. A handful of people can do that, but most of us, it's not going to work. Fewer companies are going to win that big prize, but there's huge, huge, huge opportunity because they're, (laughs) as those companies get bigger and scalier, they're leaving more, not just crumbs, they're leaving like giant delicious buffets for us because our biggest dreams are smaller than their dreams. And that's okay. That's okay. Let them have their big dreams. I'm still talking about businesses that can make many hundreds of thousands a year that build up into millions of dollars of revenue. I'm not talking about you know, just owning a suffering corner store or something. Uh, I mean, when I started my business, my plan was, okay, I'm going to start as an individual consultant and then I'll do what everyone else does, which is hire a bunch of people and we'll just grow and grow and grow. And one day we'll have the learner consulting towers here in Modine. And (laughs) at a certain point, well, first of all, the year 2000 sort of took the air out of that balloon for a bit uh, when I had to lay off a bunch of employees. And it took me a while to realize I don't have to be embarrassed. I don't have to be upset. I can have a very nice life with one of these lifestyle businesses and be way happier and focus on the things that I like doing. And so I now have no employees and I've never had a better business. I've never been happier and seen more opportunity, which is completely the opposite of how I thought back when I started, what, 25 years ago. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, um, and we know, I mean, Israel is the capital of, I mean, it's like the number of massive scale businesses in, uh, I'm going to show off my Israeli geography in, in well, Herzliya is the old place, now it's Sahala. And, um, wow, very impressive. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> um, but, I mean, using Israel as a test case, the other thing that has come to Israel is a loss of something that a lot of people like. Not loss completely, but it has, you know, inequality came to Israel, like, in a very dramatic way. And it has had, in my view, a a pretty rough impact on the culture and, and, and the society. And, and 
there is that larger conversation, which we don't have to get into and we don't have to worry too much about. But in my general view, like whatever I want to do or whatever you want to do, society as a whole is healthier if wealth is a thing that is attainable to a large number of people and is reasonably widely shared. I'm not a socialist. I'm a capitalist. I believe in, you know, getting rewarded for your effort. And, and so I'm not saying everyone should get the same, but I am saying I don't think it's healthy for the economic focus to be opportunities that only apply to a small percentage. The other thing is, by the way, venture capital is not that big. It's like, it's not, it, it gets so much press, but the vast majority of human effort is not, has nothing to do with it. And so anyway, obviously this is that. my soapbox. No, 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 no. This is, I, I, let, let me continue with that a little bit. So like my, my 17 year old, she was in a program for the last few summers. It's an amazing program where they teach them technology. They teach a Python program. Actually, they take entrepreneurship. It's half Israeli, half Palestinian, half girls, half boys, truly an extraordinary program. And they teach them how to build businesses. And the whole goal is to build a business and learn how to pitch to a VC firm. And I said to her, you know, what about building bootstrap businesses? And they don't talk about that at all. So what would education for bootstrap businesses, for smaller businesses that can still be wildly successful look like? How would you train people, kids to do that, rather than teaching them to do PowerPoint presentations and dressing up in fancier t-shirts than they usually wear? Yeah, I, um, this is a really great question. I mean, there, there's... So this is actually a discussion going on among some economists. And, and I would say the, I was going to say the view that is winning out, but at least it's the view that I believe. And so I'm choosing to say it's right. Um, is, so you can think of the way an economy grows as, oh, there's these small number of massive growth businesses, you know, like, I, you know, so Google started, someday in the 90s, probably the same day a bunch of pizza places opened and Hallmark card stores or whatever, and it was the one that became massive. And you could focus on that as that's how an economy grows. But some, some very basic economic thinking, business thinking, business strategy, that would not win you a tenured position at a business school, but it's just solid, reasonable business thinking. If you sp- if you made every small business person 10% more strategic, um, that and we could do the numbers precisely, but I, I, so I don't want to overstate that, but you make every small business person a little bit better, you would see a much bigger impact than, you know, three more Googles or 10 more Googles or whatever it is. And, and I do think, you know, it, it's interesting, this idea of business strategy is not, it's not an inherent thing. If you go to the Google Ngram where you can see the use of a term, it basically doesn't exist before the 70s. It's a new idea. And, you know, if, if you think about economic history, you know, before, say, 1880, there really is nothing like modern business in any way. Then there's this period of rapid growth where, um, frankly, once you get the engine going, you know, Westinghouse, General Electric, I, Procter & Gamble, whatever, they're just growing, growing, growing. There's not a lot of strategy. And it's not really till the 70s when you start having the very beginning of global trade, of computer technology, of other things that businesses are starting to say, oh, we can't just make more ivory soap every year or whatever, DuPont nylons every year and figure out 
and then we're going to just make more money next year. We actually need to think about it. And it truly is a new idea. You start seeing the birth of all these consulting companies and business school goes from being kind of an obscure nothing to a serious, exciting energy of commerce. And all of that kind of peters out before it gets to us, you know, um, to, to like it, it, it spread, it first started at major, you know, U.S. Steel and Procter & Gamble would have a strategy department. Now everybody talks about strategy at that venture capital level. But I think some basic strategy education throughout the economy. And then, of course, just the basic stuff like, you know, basic accounting, you know, um, it's not fun, but it's necessary. Basic thinking about risk, basic thinking about time. Time is a big stump. It really, it's a stumbling block for a lot of people. They don't, small business people, entrepreneurs, freelancers, they don't know how to value their own time. They don't know how to properly value an opportunity in the future that could be bigger than what they're doing now. I mean, there's, so I do think there's a lot of real basic stuff that, um, that we could do that would, it's not gonna make any one person a billionaire, but it, it cumulatively could have a really positive effect, I would think. That's awesome. There, I feel like we could probably do like an entire, I don't know, two hours on some of the tips that you've got in the book about how to, how to like thrive in, you know, in, with, uh, you know, in the passion economy or in, in economy while like, you know, doing something that you actually like to do for people you like to do it. Um, one of the things maybe that stuck out to me though, like, could you, talk about maybe some of the steps like you know I think you talked about doing um, uh, only create value that can't be easily copied and I, which I think makes sense especially since you know your comp there's so much competition you know why not focus on something that can't be just easily duplicated and I think we've uh, a lot of people uh, freelancers hear the word like you know try not to be a commodity and you know create more value and not to just compete on price and things like that but what's do you have, like, you know, based on the interviews you did and the research you've done, like, you know, um, some, like, steps people can take to, to create that value that can be easily copied that they can charge more for? Some friends of mine um, who are in the book, at least Scott Stern, who's this MIT professor and his buddy Joshua Gans, they, they have a book coming out in a few months that, I hope they don't mind me saying this, it's not quite as much fun to read, but it does have that... <laughs> substantive, like do this, then do this, then do this, that, um, you know, that, that my book hints at, but doesn't quite spell out exactly. But I think, the, but here's the core steps. You, you know, so we talked about how, you know, there's some period of time, you know, let's call it your 20s, but, you know, less or more depending on, on your conditions, where you're sort of figuring out what's my thing, what's my, and, and your thing is both like the actual thing other people recognize. Like I'm an accountant who specializes in dog grooming or whatever, but it's also, it's an approach. It's a style. It's a voice like, and it, it can be whatever, you know, it could be, I'm the super friendly accountant who guides you gently, or it could be, I'm the jerk tough accountant who doesn't put up with your crap. There, there's this idea that I talk about in the book and that comes out of a great book called Positioning for Professionals by Tim Williams, that by definition, your positioning, your take, your thing has to be something that isn't universal. If your thing is, I show up on time, I do the work assigned, and I finish it promptly, 
Like, okay, that's not bad, but that's not special. That's not unique. So by definition, your thing has to be something some people want and other people hate. Um, I remember I had a trainer at a gym and I used to say, you have to advertise as you're the meanest, most unpleasant trainer in the world. And, <laughs> and you just don't put up with nonsense because some people want that. And she, she had her own gym and all her advertising was like, I'll help you lose da da da. I was like, no, you won't. You're just going to yell at people all day. And some people want that and you should get those people in. So <laughs> locking in on your thing is really important. That's the, and, and the language is, what is the value you are creating? How are you intervening in someone else's life so that their life is better? And, you know, it could be you make a great sweater. It could be you advise them on their IT systems at their business, whatever it is. And it has to be real value. None of the stuff I talk about works for like fake value. I mean, there are ways to make money as a charlatan, but, um, but that's, and I wish you well in that, but that's not my focus. So, so once you know how I'm valuing, how I'm creating value, you then are figuring out, all right, how do I capture that value? And those are two very different things. And we often conflate them or we just ignore the second step. Like, oh, I create value because I'm a consultant. All right, I'm going to look online. Okay, consultants charge $68 an hour. I'm going to charge $57 an hour. Or maybe I think I'm great. I'm going to charge $73 an hour. Um, that's not the right way because you capturing the value is, in a sense, the most important thing. That's the, that's the thing that you are, that's going to be the basis of your passion economy. So it's thinking about, all right, yes, I'm, I'm just using accountants because they're on my mind. So I'm an accountant. I create a unique kind of value. I don't just do your taxes. I actually get up in your business. I learn how you're thinking about money. And I help you figure out how to solve this problem of time. And I help you think about time. Um, and then you think, okay, that is valuable. That's really valuable. And for the right person, that's, you know, going to be seriously valuable. But who are those people? Okay, now I need those people. Because 99% of people are going to be like, well, I, I just need my taxes done. What are you talking about with time and this? You can't, you, you don't want to waste your time trying to convince somebody who doesn't get it to get it. So then it's, who are those people? And then it's, what is the mechanism? So am I charging per hour? I hope not. I don't like charging per hour. Am I charging per project? Am I, do I have 30 people and I'm just on retainer to them for the same amount? You know, or am I partnering with someone else? Am I going to some other accountant and saying, I'm just going to come in at these moments and you collect the money. I don't care. You just give me 10% or whatever it is. Capturing value. So you're creating value, you're capturing value, and then you're zeroing in on who are the people who most value that thing so that I can have a direct conversation about capturing the value. So it's not trying to convince them or fool them or whatever. It's, yeah, I'm charging you 30 grand. And I know other accountants charge you $300, but they just do your taxes. I do this other thing and it's brought in $100,000 of value to you, that kind of thing. Um, it is more complicated than that, but it's not a lot more complicated than that. Those are the basic steps. What is the unique value I can create no one else can create? How is that value defined and captured? And then how do I have an ongoing process of finding the people who most value that thing, will comfortably pay the price, and then, you know, how do I grow and grow 
if I want to grow and grow, maybe growth means having fewer clients and doing less work. Um, you know, growth can, can mean many things. I feel very long winded today. So I apologize. <laughs> no, we're, 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 we're enjoying it. Not at all. I will say that's such an excellent point. And I think some people want to have it all figured out all at once, but I think you've reiterated it a couple times that it's about trying things and experimenting and seeing what doesn't work and being okay with that too. And like, you know, like you try, if you want to try, you know, creating value with one thing, Oh, turns out this isn't quite the path I thought like, you know, I could thought I could get value by doing this for this type of person. Not quite, but it might reveal something else. And I think that's a lesson that I've learned personally in my later part of my career is like, you have to actually try the things to get to that point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It takes a long time. It can take a long time, but there's like a bunch of, it's not like it, first of all, it's not binary. It's not like one day I'm not doing it. The next day I am. And if I'm not, then I've failed. It's an ongoing process because the truth is you have that amazing year. It all came together. And then there's some new competitor. There's some new thing. You yourself, you've had a kid, your kid left for college, whatever. Something has shaken it up and you got to do it sort of all over again, although it does become just integrated into your life. But the great thing is you get to test stuff. You get to try stuff and you pay attention and you learn. Um, you know, it's you know, that's what the tech companies are doing, the A-B testing and that sort of thing. Um, some people, and I love this, just have the conversation with their clients. They say, hey, I just want to talk to you about the value I'm creating. Can we have that conversation? Like, um, can we just look at the last year, the last two years? Like, where would you be if I wasn't in your life? Or if the next, you know, you got the kind of standard consultant. Um, and you do want to hear because it's not all going to be positive. Hopefully, you're picking the clients where it's going to be at least 52% positive. But, um, and you can try things out. You can say, you know, I think maybe I could charge 100 grand. And you don't just suddenly call every client and say, I'm charging you 100 grand. You, you just say, all right, the next two clients, the next two potential clients, I'm just going to go for it. And I might lose them, but I'm going to go for it. You can test. You've started a new podcast company. And two questions about that. One is, it's called Three Uncanny Four, and I have not been able to figure out what that name is from. Um, maybe that just demonstrates the literacy. And my second, perhaps more relevant question is, how are you applying the lessons that you learn from writing this book to your own company now that you're actually in charge and able to set up the company and its culture and standards? So the name, I really have to come up with a more exciting for various reasons, my <laughs> founding partner, Laura Mayer, and I really wanted to call it Uncanny Productions. If any of you have tried to trademark or have a name <laughs> that it's very hard, so we were told, you need some other words. And there was like a time limit, like we're filing incorporation papers in like 20 minutes, you need an another name in the next 20 minutes. So we went into a room and that's what we came out with. So I do have to come up with a better story. Um, so obviously what I found out is all my theories are super easy. I just applied them and everything's gone great. That's what, no, no. What, um, I mean, I do feel like it, it is an interesting experience writing a book, being a business reporter, looking at business people, writing a book for business people about how they should run their businesses and then running a business. And because um, the book wasn't out yet, but it had been finished. And honestly, I will say two things. I will say 
the ideas do feel like they hold up. They really hold up. But the execution is, and I think I intellectually knew this, but I didn't emotionally know this, is so hard. It's hard because people are hard. Just they are. Um, Customers are hard. Staff is hard. Yourself. I mean, I've probably been the biggest barrier. Um, And because of all the things I just said, it takes a while. It takes time. It takes confidence. And it's hard. It's easy on paper and it's easy on a podcast for me to tell you, take big swings, take risks. But it's a whole other thing when it's like, huh, if I, if three of these risks don't pay off, like my life, other people's lives could be worse. So, um, but I would say for me personally, it, the, the management of people is the biggest challenge that I'm really working on. I find, I really believe in empowering a team. I think I have an amazing, amazing team. And I just find I'm a inherent micromanager who has a really hard time letting go. And so I'm, that's my single biggest struggle, big picture, my biggest strategic problem. And this is truly, and like those MIT guys I mentioned, this is what they'll tell you. It turns out the hardest thing about running a business is that you don't know what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> and and <laughs> that is a profoundly true thing. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And I have to make major decisions that have an impact on people's lives and my business today based on what I think might happen in the future. And that that is the challenge. So. Would you have changed the book at all, knowing what you know now about the coronavirus and so forth? Because that was clearly an unexpected event that you know is affecting our well, our present, the book's future. And COVID nineteen, it's been awful, obviously. And you know, I want to be careful in how I how I word this because you know, I I know people have been gotten very sick. I know a few people not well who who died, Um, and I'm dealing with like my eight year old son who hasn't seen another child in several months and is, you know, it's kind of awful. And, but, you know, in the book, I talk about needing a period of time to self-reflect, to take a pause, take a self-assessment, figure out what is and isn't working either in your business, if you have a business, your freelance career or your job. And so I do hope that at least some people are doing that now. And, and that, having this time to do things, to learn Python or to look inside, it feels like something big is changing in how we're thinking about who we are and, and how we work in, the li- in our life. Maybe we all bounce back in a few months or a year when the, virus, when the vaccine comes, but it, it feels more relevant to me. But of course I would say that. I just wrote a book about it. I'm hosting a podcast that comes out shortly about it. I'm obsessed with it. So of course I would think whatever happened, you know, Earth was obliterated in a solar storm. Oh, perfect time for the passion economy. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> has that affected um, your ability to promote the book? Because I know book tours are sort of the standard thing that people would do after you after you release a book. So, obviously, there's a lot more digital solutions. So we have that option now. Do you find that you're shifting in that direction a lot more heavily? Yes. I mean, luckily, I did get a good period of, of promotion before the COVID-19 shutdown. I mean, actually, now that I, I mean, it was January into February, I spent time in Seattle. Like, I'm now realizing 
um, you know, I, I was, you know, maybe doing things that maybe, but I, as far as I know, never got COVID-19. So, um, so I did get that, which was really, I mean, there's nothing greater than actually Seattle was the highlight. It was this giant theater with like 800 people. Um, actually that was weird. That was, uh, there was a shooting in downtown Seattle right before and they closed the building off. So only, it was only like three or 400 people, but still that's a lot of people. <laughs> and there's nothing like being in a giant room with a bunch of people who read your book and like your book. It's thrilling. I mean, everyone, it's amazing. Um, but I'm enjoying this. I've done some book clubs. I've done, you know, it's, there, there's a real pleasure. You know, I wouldn't, you guys are far away. I probably wouldn't have flown to Israel or Canada for this. So it's, it's, I'm finding, <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Anything that people should know about the book before, uh, like, you know, do they, anything you want to say before we, uh, yeah, that people should know before buying the book? Well, they should definitely buy the book. Not, <laughs> there's nothing they need to know before buying the book. Just buy it. Go for it. In fact, <laughs> hardcover audiobook, I read it. Um, and uh, Kindle, you should get all three. You know, we've talked a lot about big ideas. I, I, what, I, you know, I tried to make the book just read like you're just kind of meeting some people and, and they're interesting people and you're enjoying their stories and the lessons come along the way. So I want to make clear it's not just me lecturing at you about how to live your life. Um, and then I do have this podcast coming out in mid-June called The Passion Economy, which um, basically it's much like the book, I just interview people who have lives that are like the passion economy and it's just more people. So I, I, it's really fun for me, certainly. Awesome. Excellent. I'll just add a short anecdote, which is my wife and kids were in New York last summer and uh, I wasn't with them for part of the time. And they came back and they said, you know, we were at this ice cream place. It was totally amazing. I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, really? yeah, great ice cream place. And then I read your book. I said, wait, wait, was that ice cream place called Morgan Sears? They said, how did you know? I said, so it turns out you're not alone in thinking it's super amazing. And uh, now, I, now I have a place to go when I go to New York. Oh, that's so <laughs> awesome. That makes me really happy. I'll, t- I'll tell Nick. Actually, I, I just was emailing with Nick because he just, this is this amazing ice cream place that I write about in the book that just opened a big expansion. You know, he did the thing, he spent a fortune, he built his big shop and then COVID-19. So um, he just started national shipping. So I, I bought some of his ice cream. I emailed him. He said, oh, you're our third customer. Tell me if it arrives. You know, he's worried it'll be melted by the time he gets here. So, um, so Morgan Stearns, two E's. Um, it's amazing. Wow. 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 Excellent. So we're going to switch into picks now. I don't know. Uh, Adam will let you go first as our guest. Uh, anything, if, if you brought something, something to recommend. It can be frivolous. It can be interesting. It can be business related. Um, and if the answer is no, you don't have anything, that's okay too. Sure. Um, so the actual thing I'm obsessed with right now is feels like a weird thing to bring up. It's um, prepper fantasy fiction. It's um, these books about <laughs> the end of the world. And, I love it. And it, awesome. Uh, um, the preppers who, and my politics are not, they're fairly left-wing and, and these are tend to be written by very right-wing people. So there's a lot of like politics in them, but I'm somehow finding it fascinating to read about the end of the world while we're experiencing at least the pause of the world. I do want to have something more high-minded than that 
Um, but that is my first pass thought, unfortunately, of what is, I'm actually, you know, um, it's like the Netflix queue that you want to watch, then you want people to see, and then what you actually watch. So rapper <laughs> fantasy fiction. Uh, you know, these genres you don't even know exist. Boy. Yeah. Uh, Meg, what you got for us this week? Yeah, um, I think this week uh, I'm going to also go with a fiction book. Uh, uh, and I've only read one of these series, but uh, it's uh, Guards, Guards by Terry Pratchett, uh, which is, uh, there's this whole, it's like one of like so many in a series, uh, kind of a fantasy, I think, series uh, where uh, there's like this whole world uh, in it. And it's just uh, really hilarious, funny. I recommend the audiobook and uh, just to give something Thing. Uh, I think all of us are in front of screens a little bit more <laughs> these days. And so uh, just to give a break from perhaps the Netflix and the screens, uh, I uh, recently uh, uh, was listening to that as a fiction book on Audible just as a, as a break. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And something fantasy is not a, a genre that I've generally been into before. So it was a nice, uh, nice um, intro into that. I don't even know if I'm categorizing it right, but I, I highly recommend that. And, just, uh, yeah. Excellent. Marg, what about you? So I thought mine was obscure, but apparently it's not <laughs> that obscure. <laughs> <laughs> put out of this. Um, <laughs> so mine is more of, it's a company that makes um, solar panels, which is sounds strange, but I'm doing a van conversion and I just did a lot of research on all my solar panels and everything on my electrical system. I'm so excited. Renogy has been a huge help. So I just want to give Renogy a shout out and they've allowed me to like move forward with confidence, not knowing anything about electrical. So I'm super excited. Wow. Okay. So my, my, my pick is, I guess the most pedestrian of the bunch. Um, so I uh, have always sort of liked puzzles of various sorts, and I never was that great at them. And when I would try to do the New York Times crossword, I'd be like, Monday, I did it, excellent. Tuesday, I can sort of do it. Wednesday, oh well, there's always next Monday. Um, and so about a year and a half ago, I actually got a subscription to the New York Times crossword, and I've been doing it just about every day. And I actually am now like, you know, as of this recording on a streak of like nine or 10 days, including Friday, including Saturday. And boy, oh boy, it is like the biggest high ever. Um, so, and apparently the crossword was started, I think they said during World War II, to keep people's minds off of bad things. So um, if you're at all into puzzles, A, it's a fun thing to do. And B, I am living proof that you can get better over time and that you won't always be stuck just feeling good on Mondays. That's awesome. My wife and mom, well, my wife obviously lives with me, but my mom's living with us for this COVID-19 and they're, that's their thing for this. And they're only up to Thursday. So they'll be very jealous to hear you, you zoom past them. Give it time, give it time uh, and patience and your family giving you funny looks. Um, <laughs> you're doing that again. I can't believe it. Oh. Excellent. Excellent. Adam, thank you so, so much for joining us. This was really great. Meg, Marg, as usual, uh, thanks to all of our listeners, and we'll be back next time with the Business of Freelancing. Thank you, guys. Thank you.